Checking up on Saturn with Linda Spilker, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It has been about six months since we went beyond the headlines coming from the Saturnian system. Must be time for another visit with Cassini Deputy Project Scientist Linda Spilker. Bill Nye has been listening to the rising tide of concern over the planned retirement of the space shuttle. It's a concern he doesn't share, as you'll hear in a few seconds. We'll walk the riverbeds of Mars with Emily Lakdawalla in a Q&A Classic Edition, and later we'll busy ourselves in the night sky as Bruce Betts takes us on a What's Up tour. You'll also have yet another chance to win a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Emily is still tracking evidence of a Martian dust storm in her blog, and Planetary Society Executive Director Lou Friedman muses about the politics and science of climate change. You'll find these and much more at planetary.org. Here's Bill. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here, Vice President of Planetary Society. And this week, there are bills being brought forward by congressmen in Florida, bills being brought forward by congressmen in Alabama, concerned about the retirement of the United States of NASA's space shuttle in 2010. I think what's happened, everybody's noticed that 2010 is coming right up. And so can we really retire the space shuttle? Oh, my goodness, we wouldn't have access to the International Space Station. Well, yes, you can retire the space shuttle. Everybody gets the International Space Station on Russian Soyuz rockets. And in the meantime, the Russian Space Agency is building the PPTS, the Prospective Piloted Transport System. The Astrium is back at it. This is a space plane that would have jet engines as well as rocket engines. India is planning the RLVTD, the Rocket Airplane Technological Demonstrator. This thing would fly in space and then land in the ocean. How cool is that? Well, the thing is, the Ares program, this is a NASA rocket that's going to replace the space shuttle, replace all the other rockets that have been considered for human spaceflight over the years. This Ares program is way over budget. Instead of only $28 billion, it's at just $44 billion. Well, look, the sooner we retire the space shuttle, the sooner people will get on with building something else. That's my idea. In the meantime, other space agencies around the world are pursuing the next generation of technologies. So it's time for everybody to be doing that. So I say we can retire the space shuttle and things will be fine. You know, it didn't fly a couple other times after the last two wrecks the space shuttle was grounded for years, and if you will, the world continued to spin. So my fellow taxpayers and voters, if you're a U.S. citizen listening in English, I say it's fine. We can retire the space shuttle. If you are uh, someone else in one of the 129 countries, a member of the Planetary Society, encourage your country's space program to go forward. little competition is what we need out here so that we can make space our backyard, and dare I say it, change the world. Thanks for listening. I gotta fly, Bill Nye the Planetary Guy. We like to check in with Linda Spilker at least a couple of times each year. It's hardly often enough to hear everything that Cassini spacecraft has been up to in that time, but Linda is always ready to take us through recent highlights and tell us what to look for in the next few months. 
Linda is Deputy Project Scientist on this brilliantly successful mission. She has been part of it from the start, well before the launch, almost exactly 11 and a half years ago, that began its long trip to the Saturnian system. Cassini will reach its fifth anniversary at Saturn in July of this year. Linda spoke to me a few days ago from her office at the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. Linda, I am so glad that we can continue this uh, tradition, uh, giving us an update on the latest from the Saturnian system. Tell us, uh, how is Cassini doing out there? Cassini spacecraft is operating well, although we did have something recently in March. We switched to our backup thrusters. Uh, These are a series of eight identical thrusters, and we have just been so busy getting great science with Cassini that we had uh, worn out the first set. And these tiny thrusters are used, we use them to make small course corrections and also to unload the momentum for the reaction wheels because we mostly use reaction wheels to turn the spacecraft and point at our various science targets. But then I guess when you want to wind those reaction wheels back down, you've got to have something to steady the spacecraft, right? That's right, and that's when we use these thrusters. So nothing out of the ordinary here. I mean, after all, 11 years in space, you might be expected to wear out a part or two. Oh, absolutely. And we have uh, redundant parts for most of the engineering systems, and this is really just one of the first times we've had to switch to a backup uh, set of hardware. Well, let's get on to science, because there's a heck of a lot going on, and and limited time as always, of course. Uh, What do you want to start with? What's most exciting to you out of the last six months or so? Well, I think as as a ring scientist, what really excites me is the fact that we've discovered a tiny moon orbiting in Saturn's G-ring. This is a tenuous ring, and we've always wondered what's creating this ring, and in particular, what's keeping in place this arc of material that's brighter in the ring. So now we've, in a sense, discovered the smoking gun, and it's this tiny moon that's only about a half kilometer across that's the source of the particles in the G-ring and also, we believe, is uh, creating the arc as well. And there also may be other particles, bigger particles, maybe a meter or a 100 meters in size uh, that we haven't seen that might be part of the G-ring as well. So I thought that that was a really cool discovery. Now, people can read more about this and all the other stuff we're going to talk about on the website, of course, and we should point out it's now the Cassini Equinox or Equinox Mission website because you've got this other big thing about to happen. Right. What happens is every 15 years, Saturn, as it goes around its orbit, takes about 30 years. So every 15 years, we get a time when the rings cross relative to the Earth, also relative to the Sun. And it turns out that on October 11th, the Sun will go from shining on the south side of the rings to shining on the north side of the rings, and hence the name the Cassini Equinox Mission. And we're very excited to watch uh, what is going to be happening in the, the months ahead including already we're starting to see shadows of the tiny moons that orbit just outside the rings, casting their long shadows on the rings. We'll be looking to see if there's any unusual warping or structure in the rings, measuring how the temperatures cool off as the sunlight uh, fades from both sides of the rings. So a very interesting and exciting time because, as you know, as seen from the Earth, the rings are going to be edge-on, and so it's very, very hard to make any measurements of the rings. So having Cassini there in orbit will give us a unique opportunity to make some of those measurements. Is anybody expecting that there'll be changes down on the planet itself as the the sun starts shining on a different hemisphere? That's a great question, Matt. That's very possible. Another thing that happens is the rings now just cast a shadow just at the equator, 
and we'll be watching. We know that when the shadow of the rings was in the northern hemisphere, when Cassini first got to Saturn, the atmosphere of Saturn had kind of a bluish color, very reminiscent of something that you might see perhaps at Neptune. And as the ring shadow has receded, the, the, that perhaps haze or whatever, that process going on has caused that bluish color to fade. So this is certainly a good time to look at the planet as well because uh, that this is the chance to see most of the planet without a shadow of the rings. Yeah, Bruce Batts, of course, has been telling everybody that uh, this is an interesting time to look at Saturn as we, as you said, begin to see those rings edge on. Let, let's move out, back out to uh, some of those moons, some of the bigger moons. Uh, you've been to Titan uh, at least a couple of times just in the last couple of weeks. Right. We, we've been having a number of Titan flybys, and every time we get close to Titan, we have a chance to make radar measurements or perhaps take radio science occultations or just get a really, really good look at the planet. And as you know, Titan is unique in the solar system. It's, it's this moon with a thick atmosphere, and there's a lot of complex organic chemistry that's been going on. And one of the recent findings, so there have actually been changes on Titan, and in particular at the South Pole, it turns out that we have two sets of images about a year apart. And during that time, we also noticed that there were clouds and, and action going on at the South Pole, perhaps uh, methane rain. And sure enough, uh, pictures taken a year apart show changes, that there are new lakes that we actually saw in some of these pictures, indicating that there's weather on Titan and seasons on Titan as well. Mm. So we've been looking now carefully at the dunes. Uh, in particular, we have four years of radar data to look at equivalent of sand dunes on Titan, or hydrocarbon dunes. And these dunes are, are, are kind of like weather vanes in that they can tell us which direction the winds might be blowing on Titan. Since there aren't a whole lot of clouds, it's hard to track cloud motion like you might do on the Earth and get the weather patterns that way. But in the case of uh, Titan's dunes, it looks like the winds are blowing to the east. And this is very interesting because a lot of our global atmospheric models for Titan predicted that the wind should be blowing to the west instead. <laughs> so we, ha we have a puzzle. Uh, which is not a bad thing, really. I mean, it's, uh, it's always fun to get data that goes against theory, right? Right, right. And that just makes us think a little bit harder and come up with new models, essentially, to uh, help us understand uh, the data. Uh, another interesting thing is there's a, a bright region called Hote Arcus on Titan, and that region appears to have changed in brightness over a number of years, change in brightness in the infrared. And there's lots of good ideas for what might be causing this particular region on Titan to vary, including maybe perhaps there might be active cryovolcanism, you know, ice volcanoes today, or, or maybe it's ammonia frost on the surface that comes and goes and gives that part of the surface a change in brightness, or, or maybe even a ground fog, you know, just some kind of a ground fog that sometimes there's more ground fog there, sometimes less. And so there's a, a great debate going on about what might be causing these uh, changes on, in brightness on Titan's surface. Hydrocarbon ground fog. That is so exotic. Right. <laughs> yes. Very exotic. And the interesting thing about Titan is we know it needs to have a source to replenish the methane in the atmosphere. And so some kind of outgassing or cryovolcanism or something is probably needed, at least in the long run, to keep that methane supply at the volume that we see it today. That's Linda Spilker, Deputy Project Scientist on the Cassini Equinox mission. She'll have more to say about Titan and other members of Saturn's family when Planetary Radio continues in a minute.
I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. The bus-sized Cassini spacecraft continues to circle beautiful Saturn, revealing new wonders to all of us stuck down here a billion miles away. Deputy Project Scientist Linda Spilker is sharing just a bit of what has been learned in the past few months. She also talked with me about a couple of new features on the Cassini website that really make you part of the action. Before we go someplace else to talk about cryovolcanism, I just want to mention something else that I found on the website, and that is this this radar flyover of Titan. Uh, are you familiar with it? Right. It's a movie that they've made to try and give you a 3D image of what it might feel like if you could be in a plane and, and have a flyover of Titan's surface. It's very interesting, lots of fun to watch. Yeah, pretty cool, as is the Cassini virtual tour of the Saturnian system, which is another really nice uh, interactive plaything uh, game, almost, that you can uh, use on the Cassini website. Great fun to play with. Let's go to uh, that odd little moon, that fun little moon, Enceladus. Uh, I said we'd want to talk more about cryovolcanism. Are we getting a better handle on what's going on in this place that uh, was once thought to be too small to be putting on the fireworks show that it is. Right. Enceladus is really a puzzle. Here's this tiny moon, and yet it has these active plumes or jets of of water ice particles coming out and gas coming out. And we haven't had a close flyby recently, though those will be coming up again also in the fall. We'll have a couple more close flybys, a chance to actually dip down and sample uh, the material that's inside of those uh, jets and plumes. Just very fascinating. One of the things that's come out recently is that it looks like there's the equivalent of tectonic activity at the south pole of Titan. And some scientists actually took and said, what would happen if we start to close up the tiger stripes or sort of basically move the tectonic activity backwards in time? And lo and behold, they found that they could get two halves of a crater or of a circular feature, possibly a crater, to match up if they just sort of slip move those cracks together and move that tectonic activity backwards in time. No kidding. What a terrific little visual riddle they solved. Right, right. And, you know, it's kind of fun to keep, like I say, closing the tiger stripes and and moving the tectonic activity backward. And lo and behold, hey, this feature, everything lines up and some of the other linear cracks and features seem to line up as well. So a lot has been happening at the South Pole of Enceladus. And Coming up, like I say, later this year and in the coming years, we're going to try and have a lot more flybys of Enceladus close to the South Pole to really try and figure out what might be going on there. What else can we look forward to in the next uh, six months or so? 
Well, we're going to be having, uh, continue to have more Titan flybys. Of course, the equinox coming up in the fall. And then Cassini will spend a period of time actually orbiting in Saturn's equatorial plane. And this is a very good time to make measurements of the planet because the rings, as seen from Cassini, are edge-on. And so you can do a lot of mapping of the weather and the changes on Saturn as well. You know, Saturn is so intriguing. It has these two features, one at the North Pole that looks like a hexagon, one at the South Pole that looks like a giant hurricane. And so to get a chance to understand the interrelationship of those features and the planet itself will be very interesting. Before you go, I know that you can tell us about this uh, interesting opportunity for young people that's underway. Right. We have a contest. It's called Being a Cassini Scientist for a Day, and it's where students of the United States in grades uh, pretty much 5 through 12 can write essays, and they get to choose one of three pictures that the Cassini spacecraft will take and write an essay about why Cassini should take that picture. It's a 500-word essay, and then uh, decisions will be made on May 25th, which essay is the best, and then we'll take that image. So for the Cassini Image of, for a Day contest, the deadline is April 30th, and it would be great to get uh, lots, of es- lots of these 500-word essays on. If you could be a Cassini scientist, what picture would you take? So still a week or two for teachers and any parents out there to uh, let their, let their uh, sons and daughters know about this neat opportunity where they might actually uh, get to get their own image of Saturn taken by Cassini as it orbits that great planet. Right, and then the details for that, again, can be found on the Cassini webpage, the rules for the contest and how to submit the essay. And, of course, we will put up links to there at planetary.org slash radio. This has been going on for so long now, what, 11 years in space, five years at Saturn, or going on five years come July. What's the feeling there among the team? I mean, what's the mood? I mean, this has become a, a long-term career for so many of you. That's definitely true for for many of us, especially some of us uh, that worked on Voyager. I know I actually got my start on Voyager. It's just wonderful to have an opportunity to spend an in-depth amount of time studying Saturn. And and the fun part is the discoveries are still happening even today, even after being in orbit five years around Saturn. And, And our hope for the future is that perhaps we can keep this mission going perhaps even as long as the the solstice, you know, we're having equinox, perhaps if we go another seven or eight years out to the the solstice, we could actually observe then Saturn over about half of its orbit uh, through a couple of different seasons. And so that would be very exciting uh, for the future. That sure would be. My uh, hopes and prayers are with you on that one. That would just be outstanding. And I hope that we can keep checking back with you, uh, you know, a couple of times a year like this to see what's going on with the Cassini mission, uh, a billion miles out there. Oh, certainly it's a pleasure to share, share our excitement and also share the new discoveries. Thanks, Linda, very much. Okay, thanks, Matt. Linda Spilker is and has been for a long time the deputy project scientist on the Cassini mission, now turned into the Cassini Equinox mission. Out there, a billion miles away at the Saturnian system, still uncovering all kinds of wonderful science as it uh, learns about that uh, great planet and the, the entire miniature solar system that it carries along with it, to say nothing of those beautiful rings. And I'm going to bet that we're going to hear once again from Bruce Betts about where to find Saturn in the uh, night sky. That'll be when we get to What's Up, right after a visit with Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, 
Mars has a lot of things that look like dry river valleys, but they don't have any tributaries. Are these river valleys or are they something else? Like so many landforms on Mars, large channels are both familiar and alien. Like rivers on Earth, Mars valleys wind back and forth in sinuous channels. They travel from high ground to low ground, which usually means they flow from Mars' southern highlands to the northern lowlands. They sometimes split into multiple channels, and they may contain streamlined islands. Although some researchers have proposed that wind or lava once flowed through those channels, most agree that water is the most likely fluid. But if you were to take a walk up one of these ancient Martian riverbeds, you'd notice some things that were very strange. Unlike Earth rivers, they usually have no or very few tributaries. No tributaries also means that they have nearly the same width along their entire length, which may reach hundreds of kilometers. The one place you sometimes find tributaries is near a channel's source. But even these are strange. They tend to be short and stubby, with round heads, instead of branching into smaller and smaller streams. Taken together, many of the features of Mars's channels suggest that they did not form by an Earth-like water cycle, where water falls from the sky, flows across the surface, collects in lakes and oceans, and evaporates to start over. Instead, it seems that Mars's large channels originated from below, from groundwater pouring out onto the surface. Groundwater springs wouldn't need a very much warmer, wetter Mars. Liquid water is stable deep underground on Mars even today. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Here we are back talking with Bruce Betts via Skype. He's the director of projects for the Planetary Society. And it's time for What's Up. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I guess you've also been seeing new uh, followers on your uh, Twitter account, Random Space Fact? I have indeed. It's been very exciting. Yeah, it's, it's been very gratifying. And has Matt Kaplan been getting, you've been getting more? <laughs> yeah, what is it? Matt underscore Kaplan, I think. Yeah, I, you know, it. it's not, I don't know how it compares to the radio show. It's probably less than 1% of the people who are listening to us right now. But uh, still, it's it's kind of fun, you know? It's a new technology. is cool. It is. Check us out, Matt Kaplan. I'm Random Space Fact, one word. You can at least find it in the regular search there. Their fine people has not been working very well for us new folks. And what's more, your Random Space Fact is really fun because you're actually using, uh, you're, you're providing Random Space Facts in that 140 characters, which is perfect for that format. Cool. So I'll try to give one in 140 characters in just a few moments. But first, let me tell people about the night sky. Mercury is looking like a bright star low in the west after sunset. And that's from mid-April through about early May. Uh, but it'll actually be dimmer towards the end of that period as it changes phases and becomes more of a crescent. If you got a small telescope, check it out that way too. You can see it near and below the thin crescent moon on April 26th, making a lovely picture. Uh, Saturn, up uh, for much more of the night, up in the east in the uh, early evening and then high overhead during the, the middle evening and looks kind of yellowish. It's up there in Leo. And in the pre-dawn, we get, it's just nasty with the other planets. We got Jupiter looking like a real bright star uh, up, getting fairly high now in the east. And then below it, Mars looking reddish and much dimmer. And if you can see it, still pretty low on the horizon. Uh, Venus, really bright star below that. I'll also uh, mention a couple other weird things coming up. One, if you're in Western North America, 
at least portions of Western North America, the moon will actually appear to pass in front of Venus before dawn on April 22nd. So low down in the east, uh, passing in front of the really bright star for, for a little while. And then we got a meteor shower, kind of an average meteor shower, the Lyrids peaking on April 21st. And you can get increased meteors for a few days before and after that. On to this week in space history, Apollo 13. They made it back this week in 1970. Uh, and then two years later, we had uh, this week Apollo 16 launching off for their successful trip to the moon. And now on to random space fact. 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 That's the first time I've ever joined in. <laughs> oh, that was a real moment for me. Was it good for you, too? It, very good. Speaking of good, SOHO, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, a NASA and ESA mission, which as its name implies, primarily designed to study the sun, but it's also the most successful comet discoverer in history, <gasps> having found over 1,500 comets in its 13 years of operation. It sees the uh, the sun grazing comets, and they've actually had uh, the public can go and help or through images looking for those. They're going to do the same thing with Stereo, the two spacecraft uh, that are trailing and following Earth right at the moment, and they're going to try to get the public involved in that too. Wonderful. Thank you. Good one. I appreciate that you <laughs> never actually say bad one. I, I think that they're of uniformly excellent quality. That's one. Oh, there you go. On to the trivia contest. Uh, we talked about the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which was used only for glide tests, tests early in the program. And I asked you, what noticeable item, noticeable item, did it use during its first glide tests, but not later ones? How'd we do? Torsten Zimmer, of course, can always be counted on for the uh, the humorous answer uh, to the question of the week. Uh, he said that um, it was, you know, very sadly, the transporter that had to be removed after that terrible accident during one of the first tests. Haha, ha, but I no. I think he's confused. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it was actually as we heard from Olivier Lasso it was that uh, fairing or nose a cone that was not a nose cone of course because it was on the rear end of enterprise but it improved enterprise's aerodynamics during the first approach and landing tests it was it was quite an impressive thing it it made the shuttle uh, enterprise look a lot more uh, streamlined and that was the answer we heard from most people but you know what olivier didn't stop there he also mentioned the pitot tube that was on the nose of Enterprise <laughs> that had all kinds of other test instruments, which, of course, never flew on on a shuttle that made it into space. So a sort of a double win there for Olivier, who has not won for about a year and a half, and he's gotten himself a planetary radio T-shirt and an Oceanside Photo and Telescope Rewards card. Yeah, I was thinking a, a tail cone. Yeah. They, they called it a butt cone for a while, but it... <laughs> They preferred tail cone. I wonder probably. why. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We're, uh, it's time. It's that time again, Matt, for our next trivia contest. It's time to play Where in the Solar System? So here's your question. Where in the Solar System is Gandvik Patera? So tell me what body you will find Gandvik Patera on. That's G-A-N-D-V-I-K. Patera, meaning torturous sea. Literally, Serpent Bay from the Norse language. That is very cool. So that's two words, Ganvikt Patera? Yes, Patera, P-A-T-E-R-A. Excellent. We've All got right. until the 20th. We're going to give everybody till Monday, 2 p.m. Pacific time on April 20th to get us this particular answer. 
All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about toenails and what's up with that. Thank you, and good night. I really don't care for this one very much. You're not going to go out and think about this over and over? No, I'm really not, if I can help it. You've got like a toenail phobia? Um, I, More of a, a toenail fungus, but uh, we won't go there. <laughs> okay, enough said. Yeah, I'll say. Bruce Betts is the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up, or we usually um, don't play footsie quite to the degree we have today. <laughs> the smell of space. No kidding. We'll sniff out this mystery next week with the help of astronaut and author Tom Jones. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.